0: Okay, Patrick, brand new episode, and we have a special guest.
1: We actually have a smart guest.
0: Yeah, and unlike the two of us just ranting yeah. and raving, we
1: have a legit expert. We, we finally expert. realized after almost 200 episodes, we needed to get somebody smart this. Someone
0: pocket. that's smart. So look, today we're joined by Katie Barlow. Katie is Fox 5's legal reporter. She's a former lawyer at, lar- at a large international law firm in D.C. She's a journalist with dual degrees. Okay, there's the really smart part. In political science and broadcast journalism from the University of Georgia and a J.D. from Georgetown Law. You can follow her, which I need to do on her tiktok at scotus blog and on twitter hi katie
2: hi that's quite the introduction there now there's like a really high bar i can't <laughs> screw this up
1: well yeah with the two of us though it's not that high so don't yeah
0: worry. i was gonna say if you throw around any legal term you'll have basically uh, mastered uh, w- far beyond anything that we have on this show so
1: you're and all Sarah, set wow. we, actually have, uh, we actually have a An attorney that's smarter than Joe Decipio On so that's always good
0: oh wow What and okay shots fired For poor Joe okay
2: (laughs) I've been a recovering lawyer for Almost two years now so I don't even know if I can Remember all the legal terms anymore so
0: Yeah that's and
1: You were like I'm sure you can
0: Were you criminal defense too
2: yeah, I did a lot of white collar investigations. So usually when, you know, global banks got into trouble with DOJ or the SEC or, um, you know, a, a local district like the Southern District of New York, we would help them facilitate the information sharing process. We basically would go collect a bunch of stuff and then um, help the government sift through all of the potentially bad things
1: okay. that happened. Oh, okay. Interesting. And why and why did you decide to uh, be, become a recovering lawyer?
2: So this was actually all a part of the plan. I went to law school to be a journalist. If You go back and read my uh, law school entry essay that Georgetown decided to accept me on. um, It was because I wanted to do this. But I felt like um, the law was which is why I majored in broadcast news as well. But the law is so inaccessible especially at the local news level um where so many things are happening and and the law is like a language that a lot of people don't understand and it's purposefully a high barrier to entry lawyers are expensive understanding the court system and what's happening and how it's happening is expensive so i figured i'll go to law school i'll learn how to speak that language then i'll practice for a few years and speak it as fluently as i can and then i'll get into the translation business which is where i am now. pretty much left
1: law right when COVID.
2: I left February of 2020. Um, My husband and I took a trip to New Zealand because he also um, had recently left um, his job. So we had some time and went for a couple of weeks. And um, we the last day we were in New Zealand is when the country said either get out or stay in indefinitely. (gasps) And we considered very briefly to stay (laughs) indefinitely. And turns out that would have worked out well, because like a month later, they were back to normal ish. But uh, but we came home.
1: Uh, and Sarah, wow. her husband is a very accomplished attorney also. So it's a very smart household.
2: Okay. Those He's lawyers still practicing, not uh, recovering. <laughs> He's still,
1: still practicing. practicing. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Katie, we're so glad to have you. Wanted to touch on a few uh, court, certainly related to COVID. Obviously you had, you have, or had the seven school districts in Virginia sued uh governor yunkin who i think on day two of his tenure uh put in uh executive order uh removing or or not making uh mass in schools um, uh mandatory it the seven schools received i guess it was an injunction but were they Did they actually win? Can you give us some where that is? What's the next step to that? And and now that we've seen in the last several days, a lot of states, a lot of districts starting to uh, determine dates where masking in schools will end or certainly mandated. Uh, Do you see this case even going forward?
2: Yeah, so there have been several updates in several of the cases um, across the Commonwealth just in the past 24 hours. But the suit that you're talking about um, is exactly one of those reasons I got into the to the business of explaining, because it's a technical opinion. Um, Seven school districts sued the governor and they said. We have the right under the Virginia Constitution and under state law that was passed during COVID. um, We have exclusive supervision over students in our district. We get to decide, Governor, you can't come in and tell us. Somebody else gets to decide. They sued the governor and they asked for what's called a, a, a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction. And it's simply just a big pause button. They asked the court to say, can you please press pause on the governor's executive order because this is making it incredibly um difficult for us you know parents are coming in with copies of the executive order saying we get to make this decision we've decided otherwise this is turning into a big hairy mess so can you just press pause and then we'll actually sort out whether it is against the law or not so really the preliminary question and then the governor's office came in and said um I'm sorry we are correct here we have the authority we are empowered by the governor we're basically continuing to do what governor Northam was doing which is taking all of the information available to us and then Um, you know, implementing the policies as we see fit. So they said, can you please press pause on the school districts? Can you please press pause and issue a temporary restraining order on their behavior? So both sides were saying press pause. And and that's what the court decided. They were basically deciding if there's going to be a pause button, who's it on while we sort out if this law if this decision by the governor's office is legal and and constitutional. So what the court decided, the judge, um, Judge Louise DiMatteo at the Arlington Circuit Court is, I'm going to press pause on the governor's order. Um, And so she sided with the school districts. It's a preliminary win for them because they get to keep making their decision to impose mask mandates. Um, And it's a it's a short term loss for the governor's office, but it is not a decision on. Um, the benefits or um, an agreement with um, or or any decision on the value of masking as a policy in schools. So this is just a decision of who is likely to succeed in their case, which she decided the school districts were. Okay. Um, And that is kind of how we ended up there.
1: So and then yesterday you had quickly you had Castile versus Youngkin out of chesapeake and in that case they in essence ruled for the governor again i don't think they made a legal opinion i think they just made um they dismissed i guess castillo's complaint if if you could just quickly uh, yeah
2: they they actually did they issued a three-page opinion um so the the parents in chesapeake sued the governor in the Virginia Supreme Court, which is Virginia's highest Supreme Court, and they were saying this is a this is an emergency. We need a mandamus. We need you to order the governor's office to do X, Y and Z. And the Supreme Court said, whoa, 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 you can't just march in here and ask for things like that right off the bat. There are some legal terms for what they were asking for. But the Supreme Court essentially said this is not the proper forum to come in and ask for us to do that. Um, We can only do that with certain types of judicial behavior and the governor's not asking, the the governor's not engaging in judicial behavior and uh, the school boards are not engaging in judicial behavior. So we can't, this is not really our jurisdiction to come in here, but they did drop a footnote in that opinion and, and they said, Um, this is not a decision on the constitutionality or validity of the governor's executive order. So the governor's office was touting that as a win yesterday. um, And Chesapeake, I believe, is continuing to impose mask mandates. So um, the Supreme Court basically said, you can't come straight to us. And the way the Virginia courts work um, is similar to the federal courts where there are levels. You kind of you start at the bottom and you have to work your way up. And you typically start in the circuit court level, which is where the seven school districts started. And then when you lose, which the governor has already promised to do with his AG, you appeal to the Court of Appeals. And then if you lose there, you appeal to the Virginia Supreme Court. And they are the final arbiters. They have the final say of what's going to happen here. And, and they also said in that Chesapeake case, um, you know, look, this is already kind of percolating and working its way up through um, the, the courts in Arlington right now. So. Um, You know, so this this could come back to the Supreme Court.
0: Katie, in your legal opinion, knowing school districts, knowing, um, you know, the state level, what's your what do you think the um, chances are that Glenn Youngkin, that Governor Youngkin is successful?
2: Oh, my gosh, that is the million dollar question. So I had the privilege of sitting in the oral argument this week with um, Judge DiMatteo. This is a really hard issue because um, I think that the school boards have (laughs) the law on their side because the the General Assembly explicitly passed Senate Bill 1303, which says that school boards need to um, comply with CDC guidance to the maximum extent practicable. Um, and they also have constitutional provision, Article 8, saying that they have exclusive supervision over schools. And I didn't know this, fun fact, for local residents who probably know way more than I do. But the way Virginia school districts work is different than where I grew up in Georgia. It's different than some of our neighboring states, like in Maryland. They have more independent authority that is not derived from a state school board on high. Okay. Um, and that's part of the way that the Virginia Constitution was constructed. So um, I think they have really strong arguments on the law. On the other hand, and I'm going to um, law exam this for you and give the other argument, um, sure. what what his, um, Governor Youngkin's very able attorney, Stephen Pops, the deputy attorney general, argued was, look, Governor Northam took the information that he had, and he made a lot of sweeping executive orders that are way more, um, you know, infringing on lives than the mask, um, allowing parents to decide their children yeah. whether they wear masks, you know, the governor um, imposed curfews the governor's shut down businesses and so th- obviously the governor has authority here especially when there is an emergency and this governor has decided based on the information he has this is what he's going to decide um, so it's really a cl- it's a classic clash of you know executive power versus you know legislative power the general assembly has said something so if the school
1: um, districts wow. decide to not go forward and lift their mask mandates Do you think the governor goes forward to try to win the case so future, so there's some sort of precedent set on emergency orders or executive orders? Or do you think it would just go away at that point?
2: Yeah, I don't think a court would weigh in because there's a there's a principle in law that is Courts generally don't serve as advisory bodies. They don't give advisory opinions, and so if there's not an actual harm, then it's a waste of the court's resources, and it's beyond their jurisdiction to weigh in on something that is not an actual problem anymore. Um, and so, if they, if the school districts were to decide were no longer imposing mask mandates, there wouldn't really be something for the the judge to continue to consider because there wouldn't be any harm anymore. There wouldn't be any pause button that the governor would have to argue in court, I need press, this is an emergency, you gotta do this. Um, And and we have this principle in law that we don't waste the court's resources in that way. um, And that governors and presidents um, who have also asked for similar advisory opinions don't get to just ask the court. Uh, for their opinion, unless there's real harm to Americans, unless there, you know, there's a reason that they're in court. So, but, but all of these cases that we've talked about, there's still two others out there um, that are still working their way through the courts that I think um, have shown a lot of potential to keep going. The, um, in Loudoun County, which has made plenty of headlines over the past few years, um, three parents in Loudoun County sued the school board and said um, you're violating our rights as parents under the governor's executive order and the governor requested to intervene in that case and just yesterday that request was granted so now the governor is actively participating in that case and what strikes me about that case is the legal team that those three elementary school parents um, have put together um, are Remarkable and noteworthy. They're from a law firm called Jones Day, um, and it's a lot of former um, senior Trump administration officials, both in the White House and the Department of Justice um, that were arguing in the in the Loudoun County court. Um, So I think that that signals, you know, um, the import of the case. Wow. And then it could be going beyond the county. There's also a federal case where the ACLU is suing the governor, um, and that has the potential to work its way through the federal system. So there's so much going on. Governor <laughs> yeah. Youngkin you literally it- hit the ground running.
1: Can any of this, I'm going to segue here to the Supreme Court. Uh, any of these cases have the potential reaching the, the highest court?
2: So the federal case does. Typically, um, the Supreme Court does not weigh in on state issues, especially things like state education that since our founding have been um, left to the states to decide for themselves. That's not really their purview um, unless there's a particular you know violation of a fundamental federal right. But in the federal case, the ACLU has sued Governor Youngkin under the Americans with Disabilities Act, saying that, um, you know, for children who have disabilities, who have, um, you know, potentially higher levels of um, exposure or higher risk to COVID, that the governor's order blocks them from their fundamental federal right to a fair and free and appropriate education. So that was filed. That's the only case that I know of that's filed in federal court in Virginia. So if that similar to the way I described the um, Virginia state courts, that could work its way up from the district court to the court of appeals to the Supreme Court, if.
1: So uh, speaking of the Supreme Court, do you, um, I'm not gonna ask you for your opinion on who's gonna get nominated, but do you know any of them?
2: So there are um, a number of incredibly strong candidates. I think there's a top three. I really think there's a top two. Um, was and that so, Jack-
1: Jackson and Childs?
2: Um, I don't think I would put I would put Childs in the top three. I actually think um, Supreme Court Justice out of California, Leandra Kruger, is probably at number one. Um, she is incredibly intelligent. She has a long history as an Obama White House lawyer. Um, really smart. Um, was put on the California Supreme Court at thirty-eight. Um, vice president Kamala Harris was a part of, um, that process and, and getting her on the California Supreme court. Um, so I don't know what their relationship is like, but, um, they have had history in the past. And, um, so I I would put her near the top. This administration has asked her to come in twice to be the solicitor general. The solicitor general is the, the white house's lawyer who argues before the Supreme court. She turned them down. So, um, you know, of turning, turning the white house down twice, um, you know, sends a message, perhaps that's not um, good for her. But I think I think she's at the top of the list. And then to your point, I think Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who's in the D.C. Circuit, is a close number two. She's already been vetted by the Senate. She's had three Republican votes recently and yeah. she's working Apparently on she's
1: related to Paul Ryan by marriage.
2: She is. Yeah. So she's got, you know, both sides of the aisle. Um,
1: I believe he actually read her introduction when she was put on the circuit court. Yeah, Yeah,
2: she did. And this process is is long and complicated. And we just saw it with Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who had served on the Seventh Circuit. So she had already been through. what I imagine is a grueling process of the Senate background check when you get appointed to the Supreme Court. So it's much easier to move her through quickly, uh, Justice Barrett, which they did. Um, And so a a similar approach could be taken if it's if it's Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, because she just went through all of the background check stuff as well. Um, So that would be the politically easiest route. The question is if there's someone in the White House who has greater affection uh, for Kruger or perhaps Charles.
1: Interesting. Uh, Wow. So I I have one more question about the Supreme Court and then we can move on. So if Breyer hears a case and then he's no longer in and let's say it's Jackson or Kruger or whomever, do they get to weigh in on that case or you have to hear the case to render an opinion on the case?
2: So Breyer holds the seat until he formally uh, steps down and retires and his letter to President Biden says, you know, I will retire upon the successful confirmation of my successor. And this is actually a, a piece that we're working on at SCOTUS blog to kind of explain how logistically it works when the Senate will confirm an individual to a seat that's not yet vacant. There is precedent for it. Um, including, you know, under the Trump administration. But basically, the power does not transfer to the new justice until the president hands them their commission. And that doesn't happen until after the Senate confirms them. And the president can decide what that timing is. So Breyer will not, oral argument's going to end in April. So Breyer's not going to hear a case that he also won't then participate in so long as he stays healthy, um, and and you know alive and on the bench, um, which all indications are that that will absolutely be the case. So um, there won't be any crossover where the the justice. Uh, the new justice would have to weigh in on a, a case that's already pending before the court. Um, there are always last minute shadow docket decisions. You know, a lot of the the Texas abortion case came up on the shadow docket. Those come up very quickly to the court within 24, 48 hours. Um, so that could get tricky depending on how they time it. But, you know, the justice is gonna have to hit the ground running similar to, to how Justice Amy Coney Barrett. When,
1: we'll when do you think we'll hear an opinion on the Mississippi uh, abortion case?
2: That is going to come down. I, I would put money on the end of June. I mean, that's that's the classic um, end of the term opinion. And the reason why that takes so long is because, um, first of all, you have to get nine justices to agree on what is written down on paper. Um, and there will likely be a dissent in that case. So there's a majority being drafted. There's a dissent being drafted different justices might want to say different things and they're having to send all the drafts around to each other and get agreement. And sometimes there's vote changing during this period of time where they get convinced by the argument of a fellow justice. I think um, there was reporting of that happening when, you know, Obamacare came down um, and Chief Justice Roberts um, reportedly changed his vote there. So um, all that's happening right now, that takes a long time, especially with a case that will have Um, you know, this widespread coverage and impact in American law. So they're they're literally drafting, you know, history and the law as we speak. And they're going to take every um, classic lawyers or classic journalists. They're going to take every minute that they can to draft it.
1: Wow. As the partisanship. I mean, we've seen justices like Scalia and Breyer, you know, confirmed with upwards of 80, 90 Senate votes. Now it's 51 52 how much does that hurt the Supreme Court I, I mean how much does the partisanship hurt the court in terms of when they render opinions and, and you know are they creating a perception that the court is more politically biased than it actually is and you know how, how does that get reconciled?
2: So many thoughts, um, and even even not even 51 votes, Kavanaugh was confirmed 50 to 48. But um, so thought one, um, it's a political process that we're talking about. Those 50 votes, those 51 votes, those 52 votes are partisan political actors, and the justices are appointed by Um, you know, the president of the United States, who is also the head of his political party. So this is a political process to get them confirmed. And they're, you know, ushered through with um, political staffers and voted on by political office holders. So all of this is political. Um, Does it hurt the court? It depends on what you mean by hurt, because the court, as its own co-equal, the head of a co-equal branch of our government, um, You know, they are their own masters. They we've been trying to get cameras in the courtroom for years and they get to decide that that's absolutely not going to happen. Um, Their work is not hurt necessarily. Um, The perception, I think, has been diminished. I think it's fair to say when you look at the public understanding and perception of the court has evolved, but I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. I'm a journalist by nature, so I think more sunlight is good. And I think that the public. Is gaining an understanding with this broad national conversation we're hap- having about confirmations, about the political nature of the process to get a justice on the bench, about the political history of justices. Um, n- numerous justices on the current bench worked in the White House, Justice Kagan, Justice Roberts. Um, and so it's not, um, I don't think it's a problem that the American people are better understanding the court and how it works. Um, and I think it's been that way for a long time. I think it's good that we're shining more sunlight on the court's process yeah. on who the individual justices are and on the political nature of it. I mean, it uh, it's a it's a myth that there there aren't politics at play. Um, so I think it's helpful. but I, I do think it's detrimental to the to the courts, you know, polling numbers, but that doesn't actually hurt them, yeah. um, you know, but, in their work. but I stuff.
1: guess I guess where I'm going historically, you know, I mean, the Senate's job is to advise and consent. historically, you know, you win the presidential election, you get to name justices. And unless there is something terribly wrong in your background, or, you know, usually historically, you were confirmed. I mean, Bork wasn't, but they're, they're, for the most part, you know, h- high numbers. Mm-hmm. What, what, as a as, with zero legal background, I, what frustrates me is a 5 4 decision. What, why would there be a five four if if you're following the Constitution? Is it the interpretation of it, or, or personal opinions? Obviously, they're they're and Like to me, there should almost never be a five. I could do seven two, okay, but like how do you get five fours all the time? Or not, I should say all the time, but quite often.
2: So in journalism school, they have you read a set of facts, and then they have you report the news based on the set of facts that you wrote. And everyone in the class then goes through the exercise. They take what they think is the lead and they read the story or write the story or broadcast the story. And every story is different. Every lead is different. Every interpretation of the facts is different um, in how they tell the story. And it's similar on the Supreme Court in their interpretive Position. There are different ways to interpret the, the words that are in front of them, and a number of the conservatives on the bench follow what's called originalism, which I'm sure you know well, um, based on the original meaning or original understanding of the Constitution or a law when it was passed. Uh, there are those who believe in a living, breathing constitution that evolves over time, necessarily because we are not the nation and the people that we were at the founding. And so you get 5 4 decisions because there are different, there are sometimes nine different ways to look at the same um, set of facts, the same disagreement, and come out differently. And the reason we even have 5 4 versus one versus one versus, one versus one versus one versus one versus one versus one versus one is because agreement is helpful in clarifying what the law is, and, ju- and the justices know that there's a lot of um uh, uh building of uh, coalitions uh when they're working on opinions, and so getting five, getting six, getting seven um, you know, if you can find even the slimmest margin of agreement, that's worth it, um, for the justices when they're trying to clarify what the law is. So, I think it's um. You know there are different methods of interpretation um and they are different humans with different political backgrounds and different personal backgrounds um, and i think that that's another reason why president biden you know has promised to put a black woman on the court because when the justices make their decisions after they hear a case they go into a room where it's only the nine and no staffers are allowed in, no no one else is allowed in that room, um, not even if the justice forgot something. In fact, the most junior justice is in charge of the door. And so if a justice forgets a pair of glasses or needs to go get a paper, the junior justice has to go open the door, get it from the, you know, whoever brought it and then bring it back into the room. And in the history of the country, um, that ha- that room has been white people. Um, but even more so a a black woman has never been in that room in that conversation. And so I think, um, you know, not to say that all black women will interpret the law the same. They are not a monolith. Um, But just to have that experience in a room that they have. A black woman has never had access to um, is going to fundamentally change the court. Um, And it's because it's going to change the conversation in that room. That's amazing. President
1: Biden's getting criticized for, you know, being. In essence, focused on nominating a black female, but Reagan did something similar, right? I mean, he said he was going to nominate first female, uh, so it's really not much different. And there's, there's, it's, it appears based on what you're saying and what I've read, there's numerous qualified black females f- for the court. So this numerous, <laughs> this really isn't a stretch for him. To, to do this right sure I, I i
2: mean you pointed out reagan i think it's hard to also say that george hw bush did not consider clarence thomas's race um when he was you know putting clarence thomas on the bench so um i, I of course it, this has been done before and there are plenty of well-qualified um black judges um who are already on the bench who have already um, been doing this kind of work. Um, but e- but even black practitioners, I mean, the, the Supreme Court is not all former judges. Justice Kagan was the Solicitor General before she took the bench and the dean at um, a law school. So, you know, uh, there are plenty of qualified individuals. I think the next part of the conversation is what type of individual is he looking at? And you brought up Michelle Childs. I think she brings a different perspective also that no one else has in the room beyond being a black woman. She went to South Carolina law and the 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 Supreme Court um, for a long time has been, you know, the Ivies and Harvard and Yale in particular. And so um, bringing public school perspective and something just outside even the top 14 law schools uh, is something that that Michelle Childs would bring to the table. Interesting.
1: Interesting.
0: Katie, this is so fascinating. I, I know we have kind of limited time. So I did want to is there, was there anything else you wanted to ask, Patrick, because I wanted to talk about the governor race in Georgia <laughs> no, and no, Stacey just- Abrams. You want to move on?
1: Yeah, let's move on.
0: Okay, so, uh, you know, you've had Stacey Abrams, Katie, on your podcast in the past. Um, You know, she's getting a lot of heat currently right now for taking a photo in an elementary school without a mask on. We've seen a lot of politicians um, do this from, you know, all kinds of states. Uh, But talk to us about the governor's race, um, you know, Stacey Abrams campaign, what you from a legal perspective, because it's been so interesting to listen to you. Um, You know, just some thoughts on that. Yeah, Georgia is um, people had
2: been saying that Georgia would turn purple for a long time as I was growing up. um, And I was hard pressed to believe it even uh, up until this most recent senator election. But it seems to be trending that way. And I was on the ground covering The runoff elections uh, in January of of last year, and I I got some feel of the political dynamics and how they've shifted. I haven't lived in Georgia for ten years, but I spent you know twenty two years growing up there and living there, Um, and it is it has changed dramatically. and And um, I think that's part of Stacey Abrams' work on the ground in Georgia, but also part of um the changing population in the state and and um its evolution out of the the city center of atlanta to some of the suburbs um the political landscape has changed but she is up against um you know brian kemp who has a lot of affection in the state who survived um you know all of the the threats that were happening during the 2020 election pressure from the trump administration his his party and his state is really divided like the the republican party more broadly i think but i will caveat all of this with i am not a political expert this is just my experience from reporting on the ground and from being there uh but the but the party is split and there are there are those who um you know adhere to the previous administration and are big fans of donald trump and who he picks in the state and then there are those who are um, you know, old school Georgia Republicans who have great affection for Brian Kemp, who um, you know want some of, some of the basics of of conservative politics and government out of their um, decision making and and you know it's um, it's it's going to be a reflection, I think, of where we are nationally, where this gubernatorial election goes. But it's also a senator election because although uh, Senator Raphael Warnock won, um, he took over Johnny Isaacson's seat. Um, and so he actually has to run for election again. And that one's also going to be worth watching because that might swing the Senate. That that race may swing the Senate. Yeah, and he's running
1: against Herschel Walker. Well, we, he we is. <laughs>
2: yeah, um, he's outpacing Herschel by a lot in fundraising. But Herschel's putting up some good numbers, I think. Um, and it looks like it's going wow. to be Herschel. Trump wants it to be Herschel. So it will certainly be a clash um, of of, you know, Trump's sway in Republican politics. Um, in the state of Georgia, which uh, I, I'm not sure is, is, you know, a home run.
1: No, I mean, yeah, you can make the case that the reason it's purple now is because of Trump. Right. The way he acted after the election, which you had the two runoffs on. on I mean, to to think, you know. They lost two senatorial runoffs is, is shocking. And, um, you know, per, Kemp's got to su- survive Purdue in the primary, right? So it's you know to your point, there's you know there's no guarantee uh, Trump's influence actually may keep it purple or actually right. potentially somewhat blue, but um,
2: and all the Republicans are going to have to spend money on primaries, whereas you know Warnock does not. Um, I'm not following the the Democratic side, but I I feel I, I assume Stacey's. Yeah, gonna I think it's going to be
1: the, the money is going to be insane. Yeah. It's absolutely good for
2: good for my home state, I guess. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> good money for flowing them. in. Good, good for uh the Fox station we own there.
2: Yeah, also Fox <laughs> 5. I grew up with Fox also 5. Also Fox yeah.
1: 5, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very very good station. Yeah. yeah. Excellent.
0: Oh my god, fascinating. Um, Patrick, what else? I know you uh,
1: can So, Sarah, did you see the Oscar nominations this morning?
0: I did, Um, just because I know that uh, one film. Oh my God, with Benedict Cumberpatch, the something of the dog. Oh my God, D- did either of you see that film? No. So,
1: maybe <laughs> no. Sarah and I have this running. Thing. I I am anti award show. Um, Oh really? Why? I, I don't. I think they've run their course. Uh, and then he, I think COVID has magnified that for me. The Oscars, I've always not understood the types of movies they, they uh, nominate. But um, so out of the 10 films, I've only seen half of one. Don't look up. <laughs> which oh. I, I fell asleep after about 60 minutes. It was so bad. In I my haven't opinion. seen
2: that yet, but my parents said the same thing. So it's kind of dissuaded me from, oh, from spending I mean, the time I watching mean, it. I a
1: tremendous cast. Just a bad right.
2: Movie. Sometimes that and, happens, uh, though, when you have so such I, a loaded cast.
1: I, I don't know. I, I think the, 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 the premise was was very politically motivated, you know, yes. sub, subtext and, and yeah. so forth. So, but, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be another stellar. Um, so, Katie, do you watch the Olympics at all? Because you'd probably be the only one right now.
2: I watched. Uh, I watched like thirty seconds of the opening ceremonies. Um, I feel bad. I've been a bad American. I haven't been watching as as much of it.
1: Um, well, join the club. I, I mean, <laughs> the ice I have watched. I don't think I've watched anything. I mean, it may have been in the background at a, at a bar over the weekend. Yeah, but, uh, the what? ratings are down somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty to sixty percent.
2: Is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you got the backdrop of China. You got the backdrop of COVID. Right. You have very few american stars this year uh the timing you know the the the, the time you know change is, is 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 significant
2: you know what i'll say i have watched more of than i have watched at the actual um competition at the olympics is um, because i'm on TikTok for supreme court stuff of course i spend time on TikTok. tock yes too. it's a Olympics TikTok, and it's all of the athletes showing us behind the scenes and getting to see the food and getting to see all the technology and getting to see the prep and getting to see the training and getting to see the outfits and getting I mean, like, I've seen so much Olympic stuff, but in one minute increments via social media, which is also how a lot of people get their news. And perhaps that is, um, you know, part of a broader trend. But I've I've seen a lot of Olympics TikTok. uh, And I feel like I've seen behind the scenes and a lot that's going on. I just well, haven't Les- watched. Les-
1: Jones- oh, okay. Leslie Jones was doing a bunch, but she decided to leave the country because she said she was either being treated poorly or oh, something with China. So it's been uh, uh, it's, it's been crazy. So, yeah. Any other high profile cases that you're following that that us. Uh, commoners should know about.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there are so many Um I, I, the the biggest one in locally in Virginia, I mean, I think this has just got, you know, lightning strikes all around us with the with the governor's order. But I think that um, this case that we are following is going to be a part of a broader conversation in Virginia. Virginia obviously chose to elect Youngkin, and he is using his executive power to kind of re-empower the parents at the moment. Um, And this conversation about education is something that we've been having for a while in places like Loudoun County and across the state about who makes decisions about what we educate our children, what pieces of information and textbooks and theories and doctrines we use to educate our kids. So I think that this is the tip of the iceberg in Virginia in the battle over um really what is truly a conservative principle of letting local decide it's just how hyper local are we going are we letting a school district decide or are we letting parents Mm. be the decision makers um and and that's uh, ironically a super conservative concept of letting local school boards be the ones um you know who make the decision because uh, they know best so um i'm interested to follow that not only in this case i think it's going to keep coming up
1: yeah so people will ask me you know Certainly, for our industry, broadcasting, what's changed through COVID and, and so forth. I, from a political standpoint, what's clear to me, and I think more and more people now through COVID, is that local politics really matters. Who your county exec is, who's on your school board, who's running, you know, the state set, you know, the state senators, and 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 so forth. It's you know you know, I bet you pre COVID, if you asked, how, you know, who's the county exec in Montgomery County, I don't know what percentage of people would have known, but I don't think it would have been super high. Now, everyone knows. And who's on the totally. school, yeah. who, are the, who are the judges, you know? And you know, so maybe that's a positive, maybe that people will pay a little bit more attention to these local elections and knowing the school board will impact your children going forward.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. And local news will keep covering.
1: And local news will keep covering
2: it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, Patrick, anything else, Katie, that was so interesting? Super fascinating. I learned, I learned a lot. Hey, I didn't yeah. get to
2: talk to you much. I'm going to have
0: to ask you a bunch of questions next time because well, we haven't gotten to talk much. Oh, my God. I know. Um, but it was really – no, it was way more fun for me to listen. I mean, you know, and I think, too, it just reminds me on this podcast. You know, obviously, Patrick and I give our opinion, but um, there's just so many more layers to it than yeah. – you know, you're just armchair opinion. You know, it's it's really the legality. Well, Sarah, and- could,
1: I mean, you could speak to it real quick. I mean, you're in you're in California, which is so like so. You know, the governor he got. You guys are lifting I,
2: the mask mandate, right? February. <laughs> yeah, now
1: he's lifting it, but yet to your point, Katie, L.A. County came right out and said we're not lifting it. So it's like it's almost like these governors. You would think they'd have more authority. I guess it depends on the state constitution. Yeah. And yeah, some of the
2: states are the governors are deferring to local like Connecticut, Delaware that are lifting it in schools. They're they're saying we're lifting a, a mandate, but local districts get to decide
0: yeah. still if they want to close it. You know, it's so interesting. I've only lived here like two and a half weeks, but I. Um And, you know, I mean, of course, everybody paints L.A. County as very, like, liberal. And I'm sure that's true. But, you know, everywhere you go, you really feel people fed up with the masks. I don't know their political background, but I have to assume, I mean, again, here in a pretty blue area, I mean, you talk to, they don't, people are over the masks. And even, I mean, even us going and interviewing with landlords who have kids, you know, they're pretty upset with what they feel like is going to be the psychological aspect, you know, damage to Middle schoolers and high schoolers, so it's interesting. I, I I don't know. Maybe it's me. Maybe they see me and think I'm conservative. I don't know. But people unload on me. And I'm like I. Oh okay. I don't know. I mean, I'm with you. I think the science is beginning to fall apart for this mask stuff. You know. I mean, Sarah,
1: when we first started this podcast, you were a woke millennial. Now you're like a moderate.
0: <laughs> yeah, I did like. I just am about common sense. And I think both parties, you know, except for the extremes, have good points at times, you know, and, and just and you do begin to wonder after a while, some of these sweeping mandates and they're just so like, you know, just dug their heels. And it's like, well, why? You know, why? Why aren't we changing with the science? And I thought that was a great legal argument that Youngkin's team is making that Northam you know, went by the science, went by the science. Well, they're doing the same. And we know the who said, you know, who says children under five shouldn't be masked, period. And yet, you know, you have preschools, you have, you know, it's, it's, that's fascinating.
1: Katie, you just, uh, sorry, you just remind Katie, one, one more question real quick before we go. So if the Virginia state legislation, if, if they pass legislation in Virginia that they have to follow the CDC to the max potential or whatever word they used. are those school districts that in Virginia went optional, are they violating the law?
2: So that's an excellent question. And the, the governor's um, lawyer said something akin to that um, and said, also, on top of that, every single school district in the state is not following every single CDC guideline to the maximum extent practicable. You right. know, they're not they don't require vaccines. And those are right. recommended by the CDC. They aren't doing hand washing yeah. probably in, you know, a kindergarten class the way that it's recommended by the CDC. Um, the other side and the judge pointed out <clears throat> the pra- it's to the maximum extent practicable and that practicable phrasing is really the barrier to entry so if a school district determines that it's practicable so maybe hand washing isn't maybe vaccine mandates aren't but maybe masks are then it's up to the school district to decide but um i mean there is an argument that they are violating state law but yeah. who's going to come after them because yeah, the person right. who would yeah, be in charge Very- of prosecuting isn't Yeah.
1: yeah well, Katie, thank you very yeah. much. Appreciate it, Katie.
0: This this thanks great. for having me, guys. Uh, Katie, what's your so it's Scotus Blog on TikTok? Is that the same on your Twitter? What's your Twitter? No, on Twitter I'm Katie Lee Barlow. Scotus
2: Blog is I also work with them and and started their TikTok and they're a website that covers the court. Uh, so that's where we are with TikTok, but it's just me on Twitter, Katie Lee Barlow. Awesome. Okay, great. Patrick
0: GM awesome. Fox thank Five. Thank you so okay. much,
1: Sarah. I'll see you later.
0: Bye, bye, guys. Thank you. Bye.